Last week, uh, I introduced the concept of serve getting redefined. What we are is in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts begins by telling us that the, of, of recounting the coming of the Holy Spirit. His coming has changed everything, and it redefines the very things that God has wanted us to do at another level. Uh, he wants us to, as we say around here, gather and serve and learn. And we've seen how gathering got redefined by that Holy Spirit in some remarkable ways of increase. Now we're turning to this concept of, of serving. And how does that get redefined? Well, I said last week that serve was redefined by proximity because God came near. And if God came near, then we're following him. We should get near others. So we talked about what we can do. And, and how do you know where to start with all the needs and all the opportunities for service? You know, I'm going to go on the Bethlehem Weekly and find all those, <laughs> you know, opportunities. I can't do everything. And, and so there was this little phrase that I heard from Andy Stanley that uh, I thought was helpful in that. Do for one what you wish you could do for many. So this was about what we can do. But the passage in Acts chapter 3 moves on be, beyond just us now and I want us to focus on what only God can do because after all we don't practice some kind of man-made religion here you know this isn't just about the things that we do this is about what he does and has done you see there's another reason that God came near there's another reason that God came near. Not just to give us some great example to follow, but to lovingly deliver a message that's hard to hear. I've got good news. I got bad news. I got worse news. You're welcome. So let's start with the bad news, then we'll move to the good news, and then to the worse news. But hang in there with me, because we will leave with hope, I, I promise. So Acts chapter 3 is where we are, and we begin reading in verse 11. What has happened is Peter and John are walking to the temple, where they're going every day. You're going to see that in here, in a place called... Uh, Solomon's Colonnade, which was an area where people gathered and many times different teachers taught. And they're going there and they're teaching every day. And on their way, they get near this gate and they heal a crippled man. Now, the account continues. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes to him that has given this complete healing to him. 
as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and covenant that God made through your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So now if we go back to the beginning of the passage here, the miracle gets their attention, but that's not the lesson. Right away, Peter wants the attention to be drawn to Jesus, and he says that in verse 16. You know, the name of Jesus, faith in Jesus, as you can see, it was through this Jesus that this man was fully healed. And as you can see becomes a a critical phrase. So this loving message we need to hear that's hard is about Jesus. It's about what God has done through him, personally delivered by him. Jesus came in an unhurried manner, in a relational approach. He walked, he lived, he dwelt and took his time to express what he wanted to communicate in word and deed. It took years to do it. Now, because that's true, I don't think it's unfair for us to to think about this message that we're going to hear from him that's hard to accept. We're hearing it from him as if he were walking with us down a road with his arm around us, just kind of talking us through it. Because God came near in that way and he took his time in an unhurried manner and he laid it out time and time again. We read the Gospels, we just see this, him saying it and they didn't get it and they didn't get it and they didn't get it. He said, that's okay. And he helps them along and every once in a while he says, how come you haven't gotten it yet? All right, let me put it another way. And So imagine ourselves just kind of walking along with this Jesus, this God that came near as he speaks to us uh, what he wants to say. If we don't have that kind of a picture of this. I'm afraid that we'll dismiss this. We would certainly misunderstand it, and we would not be compelled to accept what is so hard to hear. So let me get to this message. It's all wrapped up in verse 15, actually. This was just one of those as I was studying the passage. It just just jumped right out. Bad news first. You killed the author of life. I did not. (laughs) I didn't kill him. Did you kill him? I didn't kill him. What are you talking about? I killed the author of life. Two young boys were caught playing hide and seek in the deep recesses of a church where they were not supposed to go. They're taken to the pastor's office one at a time. 
wanting to teach them a lesson about God seeing everything, the pastor asks the first boy, where is Jesus? This poor terrified child has no answer. So the pastor goes into a long discourse. Imagine that. <laughs> like that, whatever happened. And to this young boy, all he hears is, you know, while he's thinking, what am I going to do, right? The pastor finally finishes and he dismisses him and calls in the other boy who's been waiting in the hallway. As they pass in the hallway, the first one says to the second one, it's worse than we thought. They've lost Jesus and they think we took him. So, listen carefully. More than we know, we're like a couple of boys who think they're just playing hide and seek when in fact we have taken Jesus' place. We've taken Jesus' place. Isaiah 53 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has has turned to his own way. Sheep are not smart. You've probably heard that many times. One of the more ignorant animals in the animal kingdom. That has not changed in thousands of years. Isaiah said it 800 years before then. Peter says in verse 17, Now brothers, I know you acted like sheep. I know you acted in ignorance. As did your leaders and it's still true today we're still she but the amazing thing about Isaiah is that he then says nevertheless second part of the verse God has laid the iniquity of us on him nevertheless God has laid the iniquity of us on him. Now, do you see why it took coming so close to get this? We don't serve some kind of a convenient God that exists to kind of help us when we need it. We serve a perfectly holy God who wants us to see how amazing He is. Acts chapter 3 verse 18 then says this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. That's why I went back to Isaiah 53. He was one of these prophets saying that Christ had to suffer. He laid the iniquity of us all on on him. So verse 19 says you have to repent. Repent then and turn to God. Now the word repentance means to turn Peter makes it perfectly clear. We're not just supposed to turn away from our sin. We're supposed to turn toward God. Wandering sheep must return and be brought back. Isaiah 53, 6 says, Each of us has turned to our own way. We need to turn, chapter 3, verse 19, back to God. You are responsible for this, knowingly or not. You killed the author of life. 
Because you took his place in the center of it all. Get to that in a second. You must respond accordingly, willingly, or not at all. Now, don't forget who's telling you this. You're walking along next to a God who came near to you, warmly embracing you, loving you, and who has the solution to this problem that you've created in hand as he talks to you. So let's go to the good news. That was the bad news. Good news. But God. But God raised him from the dead. What only God could do. You see, verse 21 shows us that there is a much grander plan that is unfolding here. Look at verse 21. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. There's something much bigger going on than just what you've done to God. It involves timing, it involves other people, it involves a history that he's unfolding because once again, he wants to show all of us how amazing he is. Now, interesting phrase there. Time for God to restore everything. He must remain in heaven until he restores everything as he promised. And there's some very specific hope in this as he goes to verse 24. And, and the rest of it. You know, from Samuel on, he, he's, he's spoken through these people, and we're heirs of that promise, even specifically these people, because they were Jews, and, and the promise came through Abraham to them as a people, that, that through them all of the, of the earth would be blessed. And then in verse 26, he, he came to you first to bless you and tell you and to help you turn back. There's lots of hope here. Only God can do this. Now, we say around here that, uh, that we exist to touch people with God's message. Now, that God's message we unfolded to make real simple last Advent. And I, I wonder how many of you remember that. What we said was, and if you haven't been, I, w- I want you to get this. Uh, there are just four things that God would say if he walked up to you and said, saw you face to face, if he just was walking down the road and, and you were like, wait a minute, what are you trying to tell me? He would say very simply four things. What's the first one? I love you. I just saw somebody say that and they've just been in this church for a couple of months. They got that figured. First thing, God leads with love. He doesn't lead with lostness. He came for the lost. But the first thing he says to you, if he has the opportunity, is first, first thing I want you to know, I love you. I love you. Then the second thing he would say is, I've taken the first step to make all this right. See, because some of us are really well-meaning, and, and, and we say, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to, and he's looking at you going, you can't do it. I'm the one who takes the first step to make things right. But then the third thing he says is, I want you to, Help me change this world. See, this is about what I'm doing, but I want you to join me, and I want you to be instruments in my hands to accomplish marvelous things. I'm going to give you purpose. You already have value, and I am going to use you in marvelous ways. So I love you, and I've 
taken the first step to make things right, and I want you to join me and help me change this world. And then the reason I'm saying all this is because the last thing he says is, in time, I promise, I will fix everything. And it's right there in verse 21. He must remain in heaven until this, until the time for God to restore everything as he promised. I love you. I've taken the first step to make things right. I want you to help me change this world. And in time, I promise, I will fix everything. The amazing part of that message is that only God can do this. And it's full of hope because it doesn't depend on you. So I made dinner last night. Now, that's only remarkable if you know that I don't cook. I just learned to boil water without burning it. I don't cook. But I made dinner last night. And it was excellent. It was excellent. You know why? Because it didn't depend on me at all. I grabbed the text. No, 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 this, was, this wasn't, you know, quick drop it in the microwave and zap it. No, no, this was, you would have enjoyed this meal. As my mother says, oh, I love a good meatloaf. So I got the text. Turn this thing on, yeah, and wait a few minutes, and then, and then take that thing and put it there. That's good. Now leave it alone for a little while, and then, and then take this thing and put it there. That's good. And then, and then just put a little bit of this in there, and then put that there, and then don't mess with it. Now that wasn't in the text, but, and it all turned out marvelously, almost. It's one thing I was supposed to uncover that I didn't, but anyway. Still tasted good. Why was it so good? Because it didn't depend on me. I was just someone that another invited to help them do something. That's us in the hands of God. That's the good news. But God did what only God could do. So you killed the author of life. Knowingly or not, you've got to take responsibility for that. You decided to make you the center of life. And yet, God says, no, but I, but I, God will take care of this. So that's the good news. Now the worse news. The last part of the phrase. We are witnesses of this. Why is that the bad, you know, even worse news? What could be worse than killing the author of life? Ready? Making this about you. Thinking that this is all about you. Now, you are marvelous. You are valued. You are a God image bearing part of God's plan. But that's exactly what you are. You are a part of God's plan. 
He is the proprietor of heaven and earth. He made the promise. He carries out the plan. He is the one who rose Jesus from the dead. And he is the one who will fix everything. And if you don't listen to him, you're the one that loses because this is about him. All of the prophecies, the drawn out plan, the word and the, and the peoples of the world are part of the plan. His being made great before everyone is the purpose of the plan. And that is underscored by a very strong word in this passage. In verse 15, God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Now, this word witness is martis, which you can see is the root of our English word martyr. This is bearing truth through, uh, bearing witness through death. There's no doubt in this. There's no denying this. There's no question that this is going to that this is true. These apostles, many of them, went on to die for what they believed. Nobody dies and witnesses towards something they don't believe in. So what's the point? God did this. Not just that He did it. It's what He did and why. You see, a skeptic comes to the, to the thought of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with looking for witnesses that might determine that it happened. The difference between that and a true follower of Jesus is one who is gripped by what cannot be denied, something you would even die for because he's grabbed your heart and said, this is what I did, not just that I did it. This is what I did, and this is why. Because if somebody didn't pay your price, you were hopeless. You were helpless, and you were hellbound. And this is why the passage is so specific about their part in it and taking responsibility for it. You're the ones that, when Pilate was going to let him go, said, no, 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 give us a murderer. We want this guy dead. And then he calls for them to respond. You've got to repent and you've got to turn. Again, you don't go to the first service, so you miss this worship bulletin. And, and once again, our worship leader picked an amazing quote from C.S. Lewis today. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is opened up to it. When we understand who God is and we understand who we are as image-bearing, capable people with will and power and choice, we have, a, we have an awfully serious responsibility before us. Who's going to be in the center of it all? Is it all about me? Or am I just a part of an amazing plan that God is unfolding to show how amazing He is? And that's the choice that every single one of us has to face. It's why when we're selfish, we call ourselves self-centered. 
because I, we put ourselves smack dab in the middle as if it were all about me. What's worse than killing the author of life? Thinking that his solution to that problem is all about you. It's not. Oh, you are so immeasurably loved. You have a value beyond description because God decided to die in your place. He didn't do it for you. He did it for him. That you, so overwhelmed by that kind of love, would make your life all about him. You see, we know it. That's what Peter says. We're witnesses of this. Not just that God did it, what God did and why. So what are we going to do about that? (laughs) Well, we can recognize what only God can do. And we don't live some convenient religion or some, you know, thing that, so that I get a little help in hand along the way. I recognize what only God can do. And when I see that, I see my need. So I repent and I turn and I trust in what he did for, for what I did. <laughs> what he had to do because of what I did. And then I determine who God is in this life. Now, notice how I wrote that. I didn't say determine who God is in your life. Last, we make it about us again. I determine who God is in this life. And there's tremendous hope in that. Now why? Where's the hope in all of that? Desperation builds dependence and we need more of that. The problem is, the opposite's true. Prosperity breeds independence and we have too much of that. (laughs) When we realize this is all about Him, our need for Him expands exponentially. We realize that we're desperate for him because of what he's done for us. And that builds our dependence upon him. Now listen, and then the motives of what we do get shaped by God's purposes. We find ourselves going in God's direction, and we want to. But we have to die to ourselves along the way. When we really get this, that there's another reason why God came near, and that was because he had to share this very difficult message with us, that it's all about him, that God did this, period, then this becomes our singular hope, and of course our salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith in what he did, that's it. But it also becomes our singular hope and focus in our service, in what we do as a result of that. Because we say, we have been saved by grace through faith and not not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no man could boast. But the very next verse says, and you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared for you in advance to do. Now, what kind of good works are those? You got guys in this chapter that just days before were cursing and denying this very Jesus they said they followed. And now as we get to the next two chapters, they're going to be doing stuff that's just amazingly courageous. How did that change so much in such a short period of time? Because somewhere in that transition, they got that this was about God and not about them. This becomes our singular hope, not only in our salvation, but in our service. 
Do for one what you wish you could do for the many? Because after this, in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to get asked to say what is obvious and to do what is courageous. And no one will do those things who isn't desperately seeking the one to whom they are internally indebted. No one will do those kinds of things who isn't desperately seeking the one to whom they are eternally indebted. Those are the next couple chapters. For now, what are we going to do about this difficult little word? You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses, not just that he did that, but what he did and why. What are we going to do with that? Recognize what only God can do about what you did. Repent and trust in what he did because of what you did. And then determine who is truly God in this life. When we do this, we're ready for this proper perspective. Serve gets redefined by proximity so that serving the one is truly the beginning of serving the many. Serving the one is truly the beginning of serving the many. If you could bring that slide up, I'd like them to see that. Thank you. Serving the one is the beginning of serving the many. That's the start. Now, I just want to throw in another little nugget. For those who have a broader knowledge of the Bible, or if you've ever heard somebody say that we're supposed to fear God, I want you to understand that in this context. Because most people don't understand that. What do you mean? You just told me that I have this loving God who walks along the side, next to me and everything else. And then there are several different places. I'm going to give you three. In Scripture where it says, you're supposed to fear God. Well, what does that mean? Is that just like in the Old Testament and now he came so it's all... Here's a little nugget for you. Three times that's mentioned. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Here's the simple translation. It would be really dumb to not make it all about him. That's what that means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. It would be really dumb not to make it all about him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It says in another place, simple translation, it's really smart to make it all about Him. (laughs) Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It would be really smart to make Him the center of it all. One more time, Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow His precepts have good understanding. So they're not dumb, they're smart. To him belongs eternal praise. Simple translation. When you really get it, when you really get it, God gets all the glory. Serving the one truly is the beginning of serving the many. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, now to the king Eternal, the one who's in the center of it all. 
to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be glory and majesty and power forever and ever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for how great you are. Forgive us for how slow we are in getting there and how easily we slip back into the center. Thank you for the opportunity we have to make it all about you as you want us to. And I pray that you would help us to see how how significant this is that truly serving you as the one as the beginning of serving in so many ways to so many people in so many places, so many opportunities. And as we move into that, as we get challenged to be answering the obvious and truly courageous, as we begin to redefine our service by proximity and getting close to others and really doing more for you, Help us change our perspective because in ourselves we can't do that. But because you are who you are, you can. Change the way we see it. Change the way we would understand that. 